That song sends chills all over my body. I love that song. Well, I hope uh, everyone is recovering from their vacations. I barely am. When we got back from our vacation, I almost couldn't see the house from the lawn that had grown. It looked kind of like an Amazon rainforest. But uh, with Becky mowing the back and me mowing the front and giving our poor lawnmower a lot of rest, we, we fought back the wild. Reminds me of a story about a while back when the problem here in Idaho was not too uh, little rain, it was too much rain, and all the rivers were, were swollen and overflowing their banks, and uh, there were a lot of floods up in Idaho, and in fact, the little town of Lower Stanley was somewhat underwater. A uh, newspaper man down here from the Statesman rushed up there to uh, get the story. When he got there, all of the bottom stories of all the houses were filled with water, and there were people sitting on the roof all over the all over the little little town. So we got a little boat, rowed out to where there was this one elderly woman uh, sitting on top of her house, just watching things float by, and he asked her if he could interview her, and she agreed. So he climbed out, sat on the house with her, watched things float by. And pretty soon, uh, this cow comes floating by, and she says, Ah, there's McGregor's Bessie. That's an interesting story. He looks at her and says, trust me, that's not an interesting story. So she shrugs it off, and a few minutes later, a barn door comes floating by. And uh, she uh, says, now listen, that's Roger's barn. That's an interesting story. He says, trust me, that's not an interesting story. A few minutes later, this hat comes floating right up to the house, and it stops, turns 180 degrees, starts floating back upstream about 30 yards, turns back around, comes back down to the house, Turns around, goes upstream, does this several times while the reporter's sitting there with his mouth open. And he said, now that's an interesting story. The woman looked at him, nah, that's not an interesting story. That's Harry. He said, come heck or high water, I'm going to mow that lawn this weekend. (laughs) I heard that on my vacation, so I had to use it. But that's enough of that. (laughs) Let's, uh, Let's turn to Psalm 103. A while back, um, my wife Becky and my daughter Holly and I were um, shopping at Sears, and we had already picked out everything we were going to buy, and had gone over and gotten in line, and Becky was doing a a great job of standing in line, so Holly and I went over and found a chair and sat down. And while we were sitting there, all of a sudden I became aware that Holly was kind of burrowing into my arms and peeking nervously out at something. And so I looked where she was looking, and there was an elderly gentleman just talking away to no one, just chattering into the air. And uh, so I said to Holly, well, maybe he just doesn't have a lot of people to talk to, and he's grown used to talking to himself. And as he walked by, we smiled and nodded, and he just kept right on chattering as he walked by. And Holly just watched him walk out with this amazed look on her face. Well, what do you think when you drive up to a stoplight and look over and there's somebody in a car next to you, talking a mile a minute, and there's nobody else in the car. Or somebody walking downtown just chattering into the air. What do you think? Well, did you know that talking to yourself is biblical? It's something that uh, King David did frequently and even recorded for us. 
In fact, it's something that all women and men of God need to become proficient at. I remember about nine years ago when I first came to this church, uh, David Roper was teaching a Bible study on this passage we're looking at this morning. And he made the point that we need to learn to talk to ourselves rather than listen to ourselves. And that point has always stuck with me. It's really been a help to me. You see, what happens is that as we go about our lives, we can become overwhelmed with the difficulties and disappointments. And as we think these things through, after a while, we find that our minds kind of take off on their own and begin going over the same material over and over. And pretty soon, it's like we've got a little tape recorder in our head playing the same tape over and over and over again. And those tapes are often discouraging, disparaging. Those tapes often are degrading to ourselves or to people we love. Those tapes draw us to gloom, to apathy, to despair. Well, this is what uh, David meant in listening to ourselves rather than what we should be doing, talking to ourselves. Turn back with me real quickly to Psalm 42. We'll come back to Psalm 103 in a half a second. But I want to show you, this is exactly what the psalmist here is dealing with. In verse 3, Psalm 42, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. They say to me all day long, Where is your God? Now his tears aren't talking to him. It's just that he's dealing with something difficult, something that's hurting him. And as he's crying, this tape keeps playing over and over and over. Where is your God? So what does he do about it? Is he just wallow in his gloom? Just let the tape play? No, look at verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself, his soul. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls, and all thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night. In verse 11, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. You see, rather than just letting the tape go, he stops and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. God cares. God's with me. He's going to take me through this, and it won't be long until I'm praising Him again, until I'm feeling better, until things are right. And I can trust Him. He is my hope. He starts telling Himself the truth. And He's got to tell Himself a little louder than that tape that's playing. Well, this is what David's doing in Psalm 103. He's telling Himself the truth. He's preparing Himself to worship. And he realizes that doesn't always come naturally. Sometimes it does. Sometimes... When we've just experienced something of God's grace or that we're among people who love Him or we've seen the beauty of His creation or things like that, praise just wells up inside us like a well that's over full, a spring gushing forth. But more often that well is deep and the pump doesn't seem to be drawing much up. We need to prime that pump. Last week David Roper said that uh, praise or worship is the rational response to truth. 
And see, that's what King David is doing right here. He's reminding himself of the truth. Truth primes the pump of worship. Let me read the first five verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. David uh, starts by talking to himself. He calls on his own soul, and he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Unfortunately, uh, the NIV translates that to praise the Lord. And I know a lot of you have the NIV. The reason I say that's unfortunate is because pray, we can bless the Lord by praising Him, but the concept of blessing someone is far more than praising. You see, when God blesses us, He can do it by praising But he can also do it by giving us some good thing. Or he can do it by uh, getting us through a difficult situation. Or giving us people who love us or whom we can love. There's a lot more to it. In scripture, the term to bless means to confer or to give something that brings benefit, joy, or delight. And what David is calling on himself to do is to bless God, to give to God something that brings Him benefit or joy or delight. Again, that can be through our praises, but David calls on everything that's within him. He wants to give to God from everything that's within him. Now, that's not just a superficial mouthing, praise the Lord, singing a song while his heart is far from him. No, it's giving to God from our, our, our minds as we honor Him with the way we think about people or what we let our minds dwell on. It's giving to God from our consciences as we maintain our integrity in the way we treat people or in the way we do business. It's giving to God from our interests as we choose to care about what and whom He cares about. It's giving to God from our words as we use them to build and to nurture and refuse to allow them to be used to tear others down. You see, it's giving to God from everything that's inside of us. Our emotions, our fears, our hurts, our satisfactions, our joys, our desires, we bring them all to God. And the amazing thing is that in doing this, we bless the God of the universe. We give something to Him who lacks nothing. We bring him joy and delight. In the next verse, uh, David calls for his soul to bless the Lord again, but then he adds something which both motivates him to bless the Lord and is in itself an act of blessing the Lord. Verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. You see, remembering what God has done not only motivates us to bless Him, it makes us want to bless Him, but the act of remembering is a blessing to God. He enjoys it. He appreciates it. He wants us to be doing it. The reason is that when we forget, it does some terrible things to us. Forget in Scripture. To forget something in Scripture is not just to have a mental lapse. 
I uh, forgot a breakfast appointment last Wednesday, and I can see out there sitting the people I was supposed to meet with. And uh, <laughs> fortunately, they, uh, they forgot as well. But in Scripture, to forget is not just a mental lapse. The definition of forgetting in Scripture is to cease to care, to treat as unimportant, to not pay attention to, or to disregard. So to forget God's benefits, the things that He has done, is to cease to care. It's to treat them as unimportant. It's to just say they're insignificant and to be totally ungrateful. You see, God intends His love for us to draw out our love for Him. And when we treat what He has done with disrespect or disregard, contempt, we cease to love Him. We cease to draw close to Him. And it's His desire to be close to us. He desires intimacy with us. Not only that, as we draw, uh, as we grow distant from Him who is the source of life, our lives begin to be filled with death, with confusion, with broken relationships. We become miserable. Well, let me ask, are you miserable? When's the last time you just stopped and rehearsed some of the things that God's done for you? Well, I'd recommend that you take some time, maybe five or ten minutes this afternoon, just to stop and go over what it is that God has done for you, what He's given you, how He's loved you. One of my favorite books of all times is uh, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. In that, Charles Dickens develops a story of Pip, and the real power, the real emotion of that story comes from the relationship between Pip and his, his foster father, Joe. Joe is a very loving, kind, humble man who sacrifices over and over, who always puts Joe first and tries to make Joe, or excuse me, Pip successful. And Pip, in his immaturity, doesn't even notice. And he walks all over Joe. And as you're, as you're reading this, the, uh, the repulsiveness of that injustice and that ingratitude really tears at you. There are few things more repulsive than ingratitude. There are few things that will cause us to lose respect for another person quicker than seeing ingratitude. Charles Spurgeon puts it, The name of ingrate is one of the most shameful names a man can wear. Add to this what C.S. Lewis says about gratitude. C.S. Lewis said, Gratitude is the chief ingredient of joy. Now think about that. Gratitude is the chief ingredient of joy. And it's true. When we are ungrateful and demanding, when we place expectations on God and other people, we're sour and dissatisfied. But when we allow ourselves to overflow with gratitude, even over the little things, we become filled with joy and delight. When we fail to be grateful, we rob God of the joy of seeing us happy. It's His delight for us to abound in peace and in joy. So let's not forget any of his benefit. 
any of the things that he's done. And these are what David starts to explain to us in the next several verses. Starting in verse 3 again. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. David starts with the number one benefit. The greatest thing that God has done. Who pardons all your iniquities. Apart from this, none of the rest of the benefits would work, would be of any value. Like Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Verses 3 and 4 are parallel. The first line in each reflects on, on, the, uh, on each other, and the second line in each reflect on each other. So that when he says uh, to pardon all our iniquities, that runs parallel to save our souls from the pit. The pit is an Old Testament word for hell. That he saves our soul from hell. Listen to Psalm uh, 49. Don't turn back there. I'll just uh, read part of it to you quickly. But here the, the uh, psalmist is talking about avoiding hell. He says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of the soul is costly. No payment is enough that he should live on eternally, that he should not see the pit. He says it doesn't matter how much money you've made. You don't have enough to pay for your soul. The redemption of the soul is costly. In fact, the New Testament goes on to show us just how costly that was. It cost the life of God himself. It cost the sacrifice of his son. This is... The most precious benefit God has given us. The most costly benefit He has given us. There is nothing more fundamental to our well-being than the pardoning of our sins. So it's the right place to start as we rehearse and remember the things that God has done for us. Well, as I said, the uh, uh, verses 3 and 4 are parallel. And just like the first two lines reflect on each other, the second lines of each verse do. Who heals all your diseases and who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. You see, not only does God pardon our sins, save us from hell, but he restores to us that which sin has robbed from us. See, sin not only creates guilt that must be forgiven, but it also damages us and it strips us of our dignity. And what the psalmist is worshiping for here is that not only does God forgive and save us from hell, but he begins to heal us as well. He begins to restore to us our dignity. Sin hurts. It cuts and it scars. And we're all profoundly affected by it, whether it's our own sins, sins of our parents, sins of other people, the sins of society. Sin damages us. And we live under its effects. It has affected the way we relate to each other. It's affected the way that we look at life. It's affected our desires. Some of our desires become inordinate and controlling. 
It's affected our, our fears. We fear things we've got no reason to fear, and we pay no attention to things that should rightfully scare us. We love things we should hate, and we hate things we should love. Our consciences, our emotions, our intellect, our, our, our wills, everything has been profoundly affected by sin. But God has committed himself to us, to healing us. Again, as Charles Spurgeon puts it, he visits us as a surgeon does his patient, healing still each malady that arises. No disease baffles his skill. He goes on healing all and will do so till the last trace of taint has gone from our nature. Sin hurts. It causes our souls to be sickened. But God heals all our diseases. Sin also robs us of our dignity. We are no longer the apex of creation. We compare unfavorably to many animals when it comes to loyalty or to kindness or to constructiveness. We, We pollute, we kill, we destroy, we lie, we cheat, we steal... And we've lost respect for ourselves. And rightfully so, because there remains very little left to respect. But God has set about restoring that self-respect, restoring our dignity by placing His Spirit in us, by giving us His nobility, His dignity, His character within us. He says He crowns us with loving kindness. That is, he crowns us with his own integrity. The word loving kindness is a word that's just packed with meaning. It's the the Hebrew word chesed. And it refers to God's ultimate commitment to his promises and to his relationships. God keeps his word and he keeps his friends. Then the second uh, thing he crowns us with is racham, compassion means tender, nurturing care. It's got the feel of, a, of, of arms wrapped around a small child. Tender, nurturing care. You see, loyalty, integrity, tenderness, mercy, these are the qualities of nobility. These are the, the things that will restore our self-respect. And these are the things that that God, through His Spirit, is rebuilding in our lives. As He conforms our character to His own. As He infuses us with His dignity, His nobility. These things are the longing of our heart. These are the things that we really, really want. These are the things we were created for. And we can't avoid that desire for nobility, for health, for wholeness. And these are the things that allow us to experience righteousness and intimacy, which are the desires of our hearts. This is what he talks about there in verse 5. He satisfies these desires with good things. Our youth is renewed like the eagle. Our, our age does not decrease. Our bodies don't become younger. But our souls become powerful, rejuvenated, revitalized. We soar. We become free and strong like the eagle. 
the very picture of, of buoyant and tireless strength. Well, from here, um, David goes on to develop these two themes, the theme of, of forgiveness and the theme of restoration to health and dignity. And that's what he does through the rest of the, the psalm. And I'd like to just read those to you and uh, uh, then just make a few comments. Verses 6 through 12 first. He says, The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He says, the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for the oppressed. He made known his ways, that is the way he does things, to Moses, his acts, the way that he acts, to Israel. And then in verses 8 through 12, he explains what it is that God made known about himself to Israel. And in verse 8 is actually a quote of Exodus 34, 6. That's in the context, the story of the golden calf. You see, what happened there is that God demonstrated to Moses and to Israel just how committed he was to them, how ready he was to forgive them. The people of Israel had been wandering through the wilderness and God had taken care of them daily. He had led them, he had fed them, he had made sure their shoes didn't wear out. He had taken care. He had met all of their needs and more. But they got looking around at the people around them, and it seemed to make so much more sense to them to have a God that you could touch and that you could see and that you could understand rather than one that you had to take on faith and that kept asking you to do scary things and kept doing unexpected and inexplicable things himself but a God who really loved them. You see, and they forgot. They didn't care. They didn't pay attention. They chose to treat it with contempt and disregard. Well, it's easy to look back on people in the Old Testament and say, what chumps? How could they be so thoughtless, so hurtful to God? How could they be so shallow in their commitment to Him or in their confidence in Him. How can they be so fickle? But how quick are we to dismiss what God has said as inadequate or impractical? How quick are we to look around for something more concrete to put our trust in? How quick are we to turn and go our own way? We ignore His Word. We treat Him as insignificant. We don't care. We forget And what has God revealed about himself to Moses in Israel? That he's fed up, that he's not going to take it anymore, that he's angry and and, uh, cruel and harsh? No. He says that he is full of compassion. Again, that term, racham, tender, nurturing care. And he's gracious. He gives us undeserved kindness. 
And he's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Again, that chesed, that he's committed to his promises and he's committed to his relationships. He keeps his word and he keeps his friends. God demonstrated that he was committed to them. He demonstrated that he was anxious to forgive. And he is anxious and ready to forgive any of us. None of us have gone too far to be beyond the reach of his mercy. Verse 9, he will not always accuse us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't hold a grudge. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. I've heard people say, I only want what's coming to me. I only want what I deserve. No, you don't. You want mercy. You don't want fairness. You want grace. You see what God, God is worthy of our worship, not only for what he's given us that we don't deserve, but for the fact that he hasn't given us what we do deserve. Verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. See, that's how great his commitment is. And again, that word chesed, loving kindness, his commitment to his his promises and his people. His commitment to us is as high as the heavens are above the earth. He's not going to give up on us. He's not going to quit, take his, his toys and go home. He's going to stick with us. East is from the west. That's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. That's too far for anyone to retrieve. They are gone. They're irrelevant as far as our life in Christ. So forget them, except to praise God that he took them. We are totally, absolutely, completely forgiven. That's the God that we serve. That's what he has demonstrated about himself. That's why David blesses him. And then in verses 13 through 18... Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As the flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, and to those who keep his covenant and who remember his precepts to do them. In this section, David starts by comparing God to a loving father who has compassion on his children, who understands his, his, his child and is committed to his child. He realizes that his child is a child, immature, with strengths that need to be developed, And weaknesses that need to be corrected. And he understands this and he has compassion. Again, that word, raham, tender, nurturing care. Those of us who are uh, parents of school-aged children, it's our desire that tomorrow, when they go back to school, that the teachers will have raham. That they will 
care and that they will be gentle, that they will understand our children like we understand them and see their weaknesses and help correct those gently and see their strengths and help develop those. That's our desire because we love them. We're committed to our children. And that's God's commitment to us, to treat us that way. He knows us exactly as we are. He sees us. He knows that we are dust, frail and fragile. We are dust. We don't surprise him by our failure. We say, okay, I'm going to change. I'm never going to do that again, ever. And we do it again. We just get discouraged. We get disgusted. We despair. And God doesn't. He's not taken by surprise. He knew who and what we were when he called us and when he pardoned us. He knows what we're like. He knows the frailty of our resolve. And so he's not taken aback. He's not put off by our fickleness. The fact that we are his best friends one day, full of gratitude and appreciation. And the next day we ignore him and his truth. Walk our own way as if he didn't even exist. point of the section about the, uh, the flowers of the field is to contrast our temporariness with his consistency. When you drive over the hill to uh, Horseshoe Bend, if you do it exactly the right time in May, you look out and there's wildflowers all over. The hills are green, but you've got to time it right. Because if you're off by just a few weeks, all you see is brown, dry hills. Because those flowers are not consistent. They don't last. They're temporary. But, the, but God, but the loving kindness of the Lord, again, chesed, God's commitment to his promises and to his people. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Notice it says, on those who fear him. And we've seen that phrase a a couple times before. It was back in verse 11 that uh, the pardon was for those that fear him. And then in verse 13, his fatherly care and compassion was for those that fear him. And now here in 17, the, um, the, the commitment is to those that fear him. These promises are conditional. They're conditioned on fear. Fear is the Old Testament word for faith. I'm doing something up here and I'm not sure what, but maybe if I stand perfectly still. (laughs) Fear (laughs) is the Old Testament word for faith. And uh, understanding Fear will help us understand faith. It, again, it's not the cringing, uh, cowering fear. It's respect and trust. It's an acknowledgement of the way things are. You see, God is God. And as such, He deserves our loyalty and affection. But we have rejected Him. We've turned and gone our own way. And as a resi- result, we have damaged ourselves And we've damaged the rest of creation, especially other people whom God loves and cares about. And to fear God is to acknowledge this, to recognize this, and to respect Him as the one who can reverse our wrong, who can fix things. And to fear is to trust Him 
and his word and to submit to him as he makes us part of the solution, takes us away from being part of the problem. Well, why is fear the prerequisite for receiving the benefits of God, the blessings? Well, that makes, it makes sense even in our own experience. My, my family has a cat. His name is Mr. Timothy George Washington Fierce. And we like Mr. Timothy George Washington Fierce. And he likes us. But until he learned to fear us, we couldn't enjoy him. Again, it's not a cowering, uh, cringing fear. He's not afraid we're going to kick him or mistreat him. But it's a respect and a trust. Until he respected us enough not to jump up on the table and try to steal our food, we didn't enjoy him and he sure didn't enjoy us. As long as he kept biting and scratching when we'd try to hold him or pet him, we couldn't enjoy being close to him. We couldn't enjoy having him be around. And if he'd run when we'd try to feed him or take care of him, he never would benefit from the provisions that we had made for him. So we had to teach him to fear, to respect and trust us. And once he's learned that, I enjoy holding him and petting him and just having him around. And he enjoys being held and being petted, and being around. And the same thing is true in a lot of areas of our lives. The same thing is true uh, with your children. Until they learn to respect and trust you, you can't give them all the good things and all the privileges you would love to give them. You can't give them, let them use the car until you can trust them. To give them things before they're ready would do them damage. And as long as they are demanding and disrespectful and ungrateful, there will always be tension and conflict in your house. And the same thing is true at work, in your business. If you've got an employee whom you can trust, who respects your instructions and your, your policies and your standards, it's a delight. You can enjoy him or her, and they can enjoy you. But when you've got an employee who, who does not respect your wishes, or your goals. There's just nothing but frustration and struggle. And there's no way you can enjoy that employee and they can't enjoy you. Well, that's, These things are, are just a small reflection on the reason that we must fear God in order to come to Him and to receive from Him all that He wants to give us. George Bowen describes fear like this. The fear of God is that deference to God which leads you to subordinate your will to His, makes you intent on pleasing Him, penitent in view of past willfulness, happy in His blessings. There's one more condition in these, these verses. In verse 18, he says, To those who keep His covenant and who remember His precepts, to do them. Now that is the condition of receiving restoration to health and, and dignity. Fear was the condition to receiving anything. Fear was the condition to receiving pardon. But having received that pardon, we still will lead broken and bleeding lives until we trust Him enough to respond to this. Keeping His covenants and remembering His precepts to do them. You see, God has forgiven all of our failure to obey. Our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. 
And we didn't have to learn God's precepts and obey them in order to receive that. We are forgiven. But if we're going to experience healing and dignity in our lives, then we do need to take seriously submitting to His instructions, submitting to His principles so that we can enjoy wholeness and health. And it's hard work to learn and apply the Word of God to our lives and our relationships. It takes diligence and persistence. But that's the way life is. I mean, that's the way it is in every area of life. God provides what we need. He provides for us, but in the meantime, in the process, He expects from us diligence and persistence. If if your talents are in music, God gave you that talent, and God gives you the grace to apply yourselves, but if you want to excel, you've got to work. You've got to apply energy and fortitude in your pursuit of excellence. You've got to work hard. You've got to work hard. And that's the way it is with any area of life, whether it's the rest of the arts or whether it's science or whether it's sports or whether it's business, all areas of life. God provides, but in the process, He requires of us diligence and persistence. Well, why do we think that's not necessary in relationships or in our spiritual health? We just assume that they're going to take care of themselves, that our relationships are going to develop health in a healthy way, that we're going to get what we need spiritually and develop spiritually. Well, why should we assume that? That's not the way God designs things. He requires diligence and persistence. These things are the desire of our heart to, be, uh, to have intimacy with God to draw close to other people, to the rest of creation. These are what we really want. And Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. In other words, the soul of the diligent gets more than it needs, all that it wants of these things. It's not easy, but it works. It's not instant, and we often... Give up because it's not instant. The work we put into relationships doesn't seem to pay off. The work we put into to growing in our walk with God doesn't seem to pay off. But that's what diligence means. It means keeping at it. It means long, painstaking effort. But the fruit is definitely worth it. It does pay off. Well, finally, David brings us full circle. He again calls on himself, his soul, to bless the Lord. But this time he includes the rest of creation in this call. He calls the rest of creation to join him in blessing the Lord. He says, the Lord, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. All here in Hebrew is the all, over everything that exists. Everything that exists, God created. He is not one of many gods. He is the God. He has no rivals. Absolutely everything else he created. And what David does is starts to call on the rest of this creation to worship him. He begins by calling on the, the spiritual beings. He says, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the the voice of his word. Well, how do angels bless the Lord? They do exactly 
what they were created for. And that is to, to be his messengers, to obey his word, to do his bidding. And David calls on the physical universe, the stars and the planets, as well as the, the trees and the creatures. He says, bless the Lord, all you his hosts. That's the word for the stars and for the planets. All you hosts, who, you who serve him doing his will. Then bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Everything that he has made. You see, he is actually calling uh, inanimate uh, and senseless create parts of creation, parts of the physical universe, to bless God. Well, how do they bless God? By doing exactly what they were created to do. Planets bless God by going around the sun. Because that's what he created them to do. A tree blesses God by growing and by producing oxygen. And if it's a fruit tree, by producing fruit. Because that's what it was created to do. A a slug blesses God by being slimy and doing whatever it is that God created slugs to do. You see, all of creation blesses God by doing exactly what it was created to do. And he ends up by saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's calling his soul to bless the Lord. Well, how do we bless the Lord? How does our soul bless the Lord? By doing exactly what we were created to do. And what were we created to do? You see, there's a a relationship that we've got between God. It's His job to take care of us, to provide for us. And it's our job to appreciate that, to remember that, to worship Him for that. I bless the Lord by doing exactly what I was created to do. And that is... I enjoy him and everything that he wants to give me. And I appreciate that. And I allow gratitude to bear its fruit of joy in my life. And I obey his instructions and experience healing and dignity. I worship him. I praise him. And I love him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. We're going to take uh, the time that we have left to continue just in worship. Sing several songs and, and praise God. Just acknowledging who he is and what he's done.